Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring ordinary people doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who have transformed their lives since 2016 and are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, and generally stepping outside of their comfort zones. I hope their stories will inspire you to take action on your own. Head on over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm speaking with Ravi Gupta, an Obama alum, major podcast host, and founder of ARENA, an organization that trains and supports the next generation of Democratic candidates and campaign staff. After working on Obama's campaign and then administration, Ravi stepped away to start a network of schools in the South, but jumped back into political action immediately after the 2016 election. At ARENA, Ravi uses his political expertise to identify and support transformative new candidates outside of the traditional political establishment who reflect the diversity of our society. ARENA also trains campaign staff, creating a pipeline of talent to run those campaigns. Ravi and I talk about how to make politics more transparent and equitable, ways to reach out to those on the other side of the political spectrum, and what we can still do now in the 11th hour before Election Day to make a difference. And now, here's my conversation with Ravi Gupta. Ravi Gupta, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thanks for having me. So first of all, I just want to start by saying that I know you're not a new face of democracy. You're actually like the face of democracy. You're like democracy pro. So I really appreciate you being here, and you're really taking my podcast up a level. So thank you. I appreciate it. It's really an honor to be here, and we need as many faces for this democracy as possible in the next few weeks. Yes, we do. Let's start by you just talking a little bit about your background prior to 2016 and what made you pivot after that. So I grew up in Staten Island, New York, to parents that were split politically. So my dad was and is a Republican, and my mom is a Democrat. And my brother and I are different politically. He's more of Republican-leaning. I'm obviously a Democrat. And I grew up in a place that has always been eclectic politically. So a place that has gone back and forth between Democratic and Republican representation in Congress. So I grew up around people who disagreed about politics and generally were pretty informed. So I remember when I was in college, it was a very political time. My freshman year was 9-11 and the Iraq war was sophomore year, Afghanistan war the Bush re-election. My brother went up fighting in Afghanistan, and a lot of my friends I grew up with fought in either war. And it was just very political. And I remember when I would go back for holidays, I would study to go back home from college so I could just debate my family members. Like That's how intense things were. And that just continued all the way until this day where was actually one of the reasons why, like my experience with the Iraq war, I was always vehemently opposed to it. When Obama seemed to be toying with the idea of running for president, for many reasons, whether it's my mixed racial identity, my age, the Iraq war, I was very attracted to his candidacy and joined him when his campaign was just an exploratory committee in, in 2007, and then stayed with him for the two years of that campaign, doing a bunch of different jobs. And then when he won, I went to go work in the administration as a speechwriter and special assistant for Susan Rice. And I did that for the first year and a half of the administration and then went down south, started a network of schools. I served as a school principal for a few years. 
and then started a bunch of other schools. And I was doing that and living the sort of Southern life with all the stereotypes, red pickup truck, magnolia tree, front porch, and then Trump won. And then I had to get back into the arena. And so I started this group called the arena and we've been supporting democratic candidates ever since. So when exactly did you get the idea to start arena? The day after Trump was elected. So I was called into it. It was a town hall meeting of our high school students. And these were students who I'd been serving for six years. So there were students that I had as fifth graders. And at that point, they were seniors. And they had a bunch of questions about the election. Are we going to get deported? Are they going to bring back Jim Crow? One student even asked if Mike Pence was serious about the conversion therapy. And I didn't really have good answers for them. And so I left that town hall saying, here at a time when students needed answers the most, I didn't have them. And I started calling up friends and former colleagues to say, like, we have to fight. And a lot of us had been out of politics for a few years, and we all decided to jump back in. And so we started Arena just as a way to just try to turn this ocean liner of a democracy around ever so slightly. It's funny that you say ocean liner, because prior to 2016, for me, I just thought it was an ocean liner, and ocean liners don't move very easily. It takes a lot. And so prior to Trump running for office, I thought, well, it can't be that bad if it's this guy versus this guy. It's sort of this giant ship. But in fact, I think what we've learned in four years is that you can really move it. It's more like a speedboat in some ways. Speedboat lately, especially this week, we're talking on... September 29th, it seems like on Sunday alone, there were five stories that would be the biggest news item in any week before this. Oh, yeah. It's like a speedboat driven by like a drunk person. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So tell me about Arena. What exactly is it? So Arena is a series of organizations that solve discrete problems that the Democratic Party has had a hard time with over the past few decades. So number one, we find it and support transformative new candidates within the party. So people like Lauren Underwood and Max Rose and Antonio Delgado, Lena Hidalgo in Houston. We try to find candidates who have a fresh energy and a visionary set of ideas, usually first-time candidates. And then we do everything possible to help them win. We help them raise money. We help them build their campaign plans. We help them with their strategy. And We've been doing that since the beginning, and we were very successful in the 2018 election in particular in helping a ton of people win seats to Congress, but also helping down-ballot candidates. Like We led the effort to take on the IDC here in New York, which is a group of Democrats who caucus with the Republicans, and we've helped people win local seats like Lena Hidalgo in Houston, who I mentioned, who won a county judge seat in Harris County, Texas, which sounds like an obscure position, but it actually is the executive of the largest county in America. And it's called judge, but it's actually the county executive seat. And she has been at the forefront of the coronavirus response in Texas and battling a lot of right-wing misinformation there and has saved a lot of lives. And so we work directly with candidates. That's a big part of what we do. But we also run what is probably the biggest and highest quality training arm for staff in the Democratic Party. So we run a program called Arena Academy and a series of associated programs to just help with the talent pipeline for campaign staff within the party. So those are our two big programs. We have a bunch of other programs, but those are the big ones. 
Okay. So Arena, you were recruiting candidates right away and you had a bunch running in 2018. What happened there? In 2018, we supported 37 candidates around the country. All of them had competitive primaries. 35 of them won their primaries and 21 won their general elections. These were candidates who had tough races, both in their primaries and generals. People like Lauren Underwood, who I think took on, had six guys in her primary, including people who were like mayors of towns and stuff in her district. And she won that primary despite getting no establishment support. And as an African-American woman in a mostly Caucasian district, and then when she won the primary, nobody thought she would be able to pick up that seat or not enough people thought she could pick up that seat. And she wound up winning that seat as well and really hustled her way to victory. And so we support people like that. And so it's like when I say that we won 21 in the general and then we won 35 of 37 primaries, these were tough primaries. So we're really proud of the candidates that we supported. And it's part of our model is to try to find people who jump off the page. People, when you meet them, they're so vibrant and different that they will defy the traditional math about who can win or lose. I mean, speaking of tough primaries, I remember I supported Alessandra Biaggi and the no IDC run. And that was really amazing that she flipped that totally in the primary because she was running against a very, very powerful Democrat. And like you said, she has so much charisma. Totally. Same with Antonio Delgado. Like, Amazing. Yes, I totally see the ingredient that like magic ingredient that you seem to find in people. Yeah. And she was one of our first candidates. And I talked about that town hall meeting the day after the election in 2016. The first thing we did as an organization was we put on a summit. It was called Arena Summit. And it was three and a half weeks after the November election. We rented space in the Nashville Convention Center, which is where I was living at the time. And over 400 people came from around the country. And the people who were in that room were amazing people. There were some people who were already well-known. So Michael Tubbs was there, Jason Kander, but then there were Martin O'Malley, Stephanie Murphy, but there were also up and coming people who weren't household names at the time, but who said, I'm going to run for office. And in that room were Haley Stevens and Lauren Underwood and Alessandra Biaggi and Suraj Patel, people who'd go on to run path-breaking campaigns over the past few years and who've become, many of them, very important political figures pushing for different kinds of ideas within our politics. And so that little gathering is, we're almost four years now, anniversary from that gathering, has set in motion a lot of different forces within our politics that have been helping to fix things over the past few years. Yeah, I remember that really intense energy back then that was like, everybody was like, what can I do? I got to do something. So that must have been really an incredible event with all those people there. So I know from looking at your website, you talk a lot about progressive candidates, but you also talk about flipping seats in red districts. What does progressive mean there? I mean, sometimes that might not work. Does that create any conflicts for you? I mean, moderate is probably better than progressive in some areas. I think of somebody like Max Rose, who a lot of people don't really realize has a very progressive voting record. So I think that you can package populism in your own way, depending on your district and your personality and your beliefs in different flavors. So like Max Rose and Lauren Underwood are going to sound very different than an Alessandra Biaggi, for example. The state Senate stuff in New York was basically the primary was the ballgame. That's rare for us. That's an exception for us. Usually we take on races where the general election is the main event 
And in those cases, we tend to go with candidates who are going to fight for the most vulnerable, but who haven't given up on persuading a critical middle of the country or the disaffected, the people who don't come out to vote, no matter whether they're moderate or super progressive, but who just feel left out of the system. We like candidates who speak to people who aren't your diehard political activists on either side. And for us, that doesn't mean that you have a moderate record, although we're not afraid of people with moderate records, but it it means that you are authentic. You can tell a story that's genuine to who you are and what the district needs, and that you are able to resonate with voters so that you don't just reason your way through an election with facts and policy, but you're able to move people with emotion to vote with you. So let's talk about this year. Do you have candidates running this year that you're supporting? How many? What's it looking like? Our model is a little bit different this year because normally we pick the candidate first and then we think about the district. So we basically look for the right kinds of leaders and then we ask ourselves, is this a seat that's possible to win? This time we picked the district first for this election, given that we have a census coming up and critical redistricting and all that. We wanted to make sure that we did everything we possibly could to win critical state legislative seats. So putting aside all the staff training work we do, because the staff training work we do affects all types of campaigns. Everybody from Joe Biden to U.S. Senate campaigns to Congress all the way down to local elections. So we partner with all kinds of campaigns for the staff side of things. But on the candidate side of things, we've decided to prioritize state legislatures in five states, flipping those state legislatures. So Michigan, Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, and Texas. And we're partnering with an organization called Future Now Fund, who your listeners may be familiar with, but they're another organization that does national political work, but is based here in New York. And we're raising about $5 million across those five states and deploying it to support a bunch of different candidates in those states, where if we win a certain critical mass of those elections, we will have flipped the state legislatures in those states and set ourselves up really well, both to enact important policy, but also to have the strongest possible hand heading into critical redistricting years. Yeah, I love Future Now. Melissa Walker was my very first podcast interview. Oh, nice. So anyone who's listening to this who hasn't heard that yet, please go back and listen. And yes, yeah, so last week I actually, two weeks ago, I interviewed a state lawmaker from North Carolina. She's running unopposed, but it was a great interview because she gave me a lot of insight into the shenanigans that go on in that state house. That's just mind-blowing. Terrible. And that's a state where... The Republicans have just used every trick in the book to maximize their hand, whereas it's a state that's tilts slightly Democratic, but they have massive majorities in both houses of the legislature. But we have an opportunity to change it all this year. So we're really excited. We think we can win both the House and the Senate this year. Because it's only like six seats and five seats, right? Something like that. Yeah. It feels doable to me, but I'm feeling very pumped up about things like that right now. Because there's so many people like you working on it and making things happen. And I don't know. I think we can do it. I appreciate that. Yeah. So you want to talk about Arena Academy a little bit? That's where you train your campaign staff. That's a really interesting idea. So how did that come about? It came about because in the 2018 election, we'd supported a bunch of those candidates I was talking about. And we debriefed with those candidates right after the election, asking them 
what was missing in the environment of support that you wish you had, whether you won or lost, what do you wish you had as support that you didn't? And almost every campaign we talked to mentioned something about the talent pipeline for staff. So whether it's the ability to recruit high quality campaign staff, train that staff or place them on the right campaigns or coach them and keep them in the work. People were talking about how there just was a lack of infrastructure for that within the Democratic Party. And so we went to work immediately after the 2018 election to build that infrastructure. And so we built a series of programs, the most important, which is Arena Academy. So Arena Academy is a five-day training academy that we've now done, I think, seven of them. And we used to do them in person, but now we've been doing the last few virtually. And we were traveling the country. We did Iowa, South Carolina, Arizona, Texas, New York, and now we've done some virtual ones. And their five-day academy is usually a few hundred people, and they split up into groups based on their interest in what kind of vertical within a campaign. So we have a campaign manager track, communications director track, data director, digital director, organizing directors, finance directors, and the tracks are run by experts within democratic politics. So people who run campaigns from everything to presidentials all the way down to the local level, people who run key organizations that support democratic candidates, organizations like Emily's List and Acronym. And so we have like a rock star faculty that's been helping us run these things. And so we train people. And then at the end of the academy, they go through a, like a mini campaign simulation where they work together in an interdisciplinary team and they get like a real campaign district, but with fake candidates. And they kind of game out how they would manage a campaign and build a campaign plan for that district. And then we judge them, we score them, and they do a competition. And then we give away an award to the winner called the Arena Cup. And then after the academies, we then have a program called Arena Careers, which is a program where we place our academy graduates and others on priority races around the country. And Arena Careers also includes an online portal. It's kind of like a LinkedIn for politics where people can go online and find jobs themselves. So they don't have to just rely upon our staff to do it. They can go out there and get them on their own. And we also have a program called Arena Toolbox, which is a, we take some of the greatest hits from the academy trainings and we put it online available to anybody in real time to use. And it's very popular. We've had over 120,000 hits this year to our toolbox. So people really love using that stuff. And it has everything from how to do debate prep to build an organizing plan, how to set up a budget, et cetera. And it's free and anybody can use it. Is it possible to have like a full-time career working on political campaigns, given the sort of cyclical nature of them? You can. It's tough. Without a doubt, it's tough. People do it. I mean, and traditionally it's been the realm of kind of these kind of swashbuckling personalities who like a certain level of risk and also people who have a certain amount of resources where they can weather the ups and downs. And we aren't able to solve all of that. Like we can't step in and make campaigns perennial exercises. So we can't solve that. But what we can do is make the process more transparent and fair so that people can more quickly find jobs. They can know just what jobs are available and where there's a little bit more merit involved and how people get jobs and also where there's an organization that's dedicated to making the process equitable. One thing I didn't mention is that we spend a lot of money giving scholarships to people. Back when we were doing these in person, this could be expensive. You have to fly somewhere in some cases and get a hotel and all that. And 
over 50% of our attendees get some form of a scholarship and a lot of them get full scholarship, which is the registration fee waive, the hotel and airfare. In some cases, we, we lend people a laptop too. And because of that, we're able to bring in a lot of underrepresented people into politics. So over 50% of our graduates are people of color and women. And that's important because we need people to work on campaigns who represent the country we live in. And right now, we haven't done a great job of that. So it sounds like that's really what's driving a lot of what you do is sort of breaking down the old boy network, and which until not that long ago seemed to be the main source of people in politics, people in campaigns, people who are, I don't know, secretaries of state on down. It was kind of like who you went to Andover with or whatever. People are just trading spreadsheets with buddies from college. And now we just want to build a better system than that. I think it will help everybody. It sounds pretty groundbreaking, actually. Yeah, it's simple, but important is the way we look at it. It's not some kind of wizardry. It's just an important step to make things a little bit more organized and more transparent. And that helps campaigns because they spend so much time trying to reinvent systems to find people. And if we can just save people a few days here, a few days there and help them get higher quality staff, it'll make the difference between a win or a loss. Do you have any favorite arena success stories you want to tell me? I mean, you did say some, but... Yeah, I talked about Lauren Underwood, who's amazing. I think of Max over in Staten Island as somebody I love to talk about because it's the district I grew up in. Somebody who won a seat that Trump won overwhelmingly because he spoke from the heart and told a story that resonated with people I care about. He's in a battle right now to keep that seat. I talked about Lena Hidalgo, who she unseated a guy, I think he was in the seat for a decade, a Republican who was in the Harris County judge seat, and she beat him and now has saved many lives in Harris County because of her sound scientific coronavirus policy. And so those are the kinds of candidates that we love and who are doing just amazing things and changing the face of this country in a few short years since when we were in the depths of despair after that election four years ago to where we are now, where we have so many, we have a much better bench within the Democratic Party because of the work of groups like Arena and others, and because of the leadership of people like Lena and Lauren and Max. And that makes me hopeful. I'm hopeful about this election, but I'm particularly hopeful for that next group of leaders who are going to continue to ascend the ranks of national politics. So big picture. I mean, from my perspective, it looks like since 2016, there's been all these new organizations, this amazing energy that we've been talking about, like Future Now, Forward Majority, Swing Left, Flippable, et cetera, et cetera, that are doing things on the state level or the federal level to really bolster Democrats. Is this something that the party should have been doing all along? Or, I mean, was this like triage and just stop the bleeding? Or is this a necessary adjunct part of the infrastructure that we just didn't have before? It's tough because the Democratic Party is just not as hierarchical as the Republican Party. And in some ways, that's great because we don't take orders. Like the reason why we're Democrats is because we have, I think, an anti-authoritarian streak to us in many of us. And so a lot of that is good, but the challenge is that means that we could be more disorganized at times. And I think that definitely plays out in the party politics because there's no Charles Koch of the Democratic Party who's just going to tell everybody what to do, or Trump in this case as well. And so that means that we have to self-organize. Somebody once said to me, if the Republicans are a marching band, we're jazz at our best. And so 
the parties, whether it's the DNC or state parties, some of them are great. Some of them are not so great. And we just can't take for granted that they're all going to be great. There's some state parties like North Carolina, for example, like the House Caucus in North Carolina is awesome. Great partners. Greg, Representative Greg Myers is like one of the best partners out there. And then there are other states that I shall not name that have a little bit more challenges. And we have to take it upon ourselves and say, we can't just point to people not doing things and criticize them because that's what got us into 2016. And I think a lot of people thought that that was like on Hillary's shoulders and whoever else's shoulders. But as we realize, it's about all of us. And so that's how we treat it. And I think a lot of the other organizations that have survived and thrived in the past four years, these new resistance groups, the ones that have done really well, looked around and said, where's there a gap? I'm going to fill it without complaint and with enthusiasm. I'm going to fill this gap. And I think the reason why we're sitting in such a great position right now, heading into November, which I really do believe we are, is because everybody from your stay-at-home parent making phone calls in their house on the margins of homeschooling, to your volunteers in the campaigns, to the staff members, to the candidates and organizations, civic leaders, everybody's doing their part. And as long as we keep doing that between now and November, we're going to I think we're not just going to win, but we're going to we're going to make a permanent mark and be able to do a lot of good things in the years ahead. I feel like you're one of those people with tons of energy based on everything I see you doing. So I just would love to talk about them briefly. For instance, you are a host of a major podcast, Majority 54, which I actually listened to years ago when it first came out and then there was a hiatus and I loved it really spoke to me because it helps give you tips for talking to people who have different political views than you do. And that for me is a issue because I've got in-laws in Alabama. And so, and I know you said your family sort of split down the middle too. So, I mean, I know your entire podcast is devoted to this and I love how you guys like pick a specific situation and just sort of like walk it through. Here's some things you could say as Jason says, like, loosen the lid of the jar or something like that. But for someone like me, who's been waiting for four years to find the right opportunity to talk to these people about politics, I mean, do you have any advice? Like, how do you start the conversation? Everybody has a different approach. I think one thing that we've learned over time, and there's a lot of good data here, that obviously, first of all, finding the right people to talk to is a challenge in and of itself. But I think if you link up with a campaign, like, assuming we both, I think, live in New York, and there's not as much conversation happening unless I go to Staten Island for Max with people who are going to decide an election of importance in the general election. So you have to find creative ways to get in front of those people. And I think just find a campaign, whether it's the Cunningham campaign in North Carolina or Gideon in Maine or the Biden campaign in Florida, whatever, just pick a campaign and sign up to volunteer, make phone calls, texts and emails or whatever, and understand that on a given day, you can make 100 phone calls and maybe you'll persuade one person at best. And that may seem like a failure, but that's actually a huge success because if thousands upon thousands of thousands of us do that every day, that will accumulate and will persuade enough people to make a difference. And so one person a day is actually huge if we're all playing our part. Now, how do you have those conversations? It's different on the context, but I think it's important to validate, to start by really listening to what people care about. And to validate the parts of it that you can validate. So if somebody says 
five things in the course of like, what do you care about? The instinct is to pick the thing that they say that you think is the most wrong and be like, well, let me tell you why that's wrong. That doesn't persuade people. What really helps is you pick the one thing that you agree with the most. And you say, I heard you say, yada, yada, yada. Like I heard you say that the system is rigged or whatever. And you're like, and that's why I'm in this. I am worn out by politics and I'm sick of it all. And if you're okay with it, let me tell you a little bit about why I think Cunningham or Biden or whoever is going to make the system a little bit less rigged for people like us. I'm not trying to persuade you that that Biden is going to be the second coming or anything, but let me just at least explain to you why I think he's going to be slightly better. And I'm not going to judge you based on the decision you make. I understand that this is tough and I understand that like you're frustrated by the process. And so I would just want to give you my case and respectfully have you consider it. And I think as long as you kind of, you don't judge people, you don't get too aggressive about correcting their misinformation or disagreements with you and you just make it personal, you can land it. You can make a mark. You're not going to make a mark in the majority of the conversations you have, but as long as you escape with one good conversation every now and then, those will accumulate over time. So it's about finding common ground. Yeah, I think and it's really hard. You're not making phone calls to virtue signal. You're not making these phone calls to wait for the moment when somebody says something offensive and be like, let me make a big moment out of this. Obviously, there are limits. Like There are certain things people should say where you should just be like, thank you for your time and leave. But most of the time, people are just going to say some things you hate. They're going to say some things you agree with. And it's all about how you handle that, in my opinion, and whether you honor. The fact that somebody will even stay on the phone with you means that you have an opportunity. And a lot of times, especially if you're calling into places where there are elderly populations, we're talking about people who've been at home for a long time with this virus. And if you genuinely connect with people and are curious about their lives, you can leave with a pretty beautiful experience. It's a nice thought. I also know you're a producer because I just watched your documentary dress rehearsal. Oh, yeah. What do you think? It was awesome. I loved it. Actually, I have told so many of my friends to watch it because everyone right now is like losing their minds and freaking out. I mean, everyone's so stressed out. I'm like, you've got to watch this documentary. It is so uplifting and energizing. I mean, these very rare emotions for this moment. Everyone who's watched it tells me, thanks me and tells me how amazing it was. So thank you so much for doing that. Oh, I appreciate it. Is that something that's like on your radar? I mean, what got you into that? Are you going to keep doing things like that? Yeah, I actually do like a lot of stuff, like not a lot. I do some TV writing and stuff like that on the side. Like right before this call, I was on the phone with somebody out in Hollywood about a show that I wrote that is a coming of age story about kids growing up in Staten Island in the 90s. I signed with a Hollywood agency during the virus about that show and other projects. And so I've always been interested in film and both documentaries and scripted TV and film and all that. And I'm working on a bunch of projects in that area. But on the dress rehearsal documentary, as part of the past few years, you just you make these great friendships with people in the work. And one of the people I work with closely is a guy named Shomik Dada, who runs a group called Higher Ground Labs, which is kind of a a sister organization to us. They, they fill some other gaps within the space that are important. And he had the idea. He just called me up one day and was like, hey, why don't we do something to tell that story and release it around the convention since the convention is going to be in Wisconsin. 
and it could inspire some people to overcome obstacles as we head towards November. And I was like, yeah, it's not a bad idea. So we started working on it and we had this really awesome director in David Modigliani who did the Running with Beto documentary for HBO. And David and his team went out there in the middle of the epidemic and were able to, in a safe way, collect material and collect people's stories in Wisconsin. And we were able to pull it together in record time. And it was a really fun project and something that we would definitely want to keep doing because telling stories about the work that people are doing, it's really important because it can be very isolating out there, especially right now in 2020. So the more that people feel heard and seen and the more people understand that there are people like them out there overcoming obstacles, the more they'll be motivated to do so. And so it's really important. Well, I highly encourage people to watch it on YouTube. It was just really well done. I appreciate that. So, okay, we're recording this. Like you said, we've got 35 days left until the election. Tonight's actually the first debate. Ugh, everyone's on edge. What's your outlook right now? I think we're going to, I'm not supposed to say this, but I think we're going to win. And I think most of my anxiety is reserved for how the president's going to handle said loss and try to mess around with it. But you focus on what you can control. And right now what we can control is the amount of people who vote for our candidate or not and the energy we put in for that. And I think if we win by enough margin, and if we win certain states like Florida, it's going to be very hard for the president to pull. He will try, but it will be hard for him to legitimately mess with the election results. And so I'm feeling really good by all measures where the race has been fairly stable. And if anything, the news of late is cutting in our way. By the time this airs, we'll know how the debates went. And obviously debates are going to be really important. It seems obvious that Vice President Biden has prepared a lot for these debates, which is all we can ask of him. And it seems like Trump has probably not prepared a lot, but also has been highly distracted by taxes and the Supreme Court pick and all these other things. And so we have an opportunity tonight. So hopefully by the time people are hearing my voice on this podcast, we'll have seized that opportunity. And the thing is, like, we don't need to win the debate to win this election. But if we do win this debate, we're in really good shape. So let's just cross our fingers and hope in the next few hours, something great happens. Let's hope. People keep asking me what's something they can do right now, like 11th hour. You've been working on what you're doing for four years almost. I've certainly been working all that time too. But if there's one thing people should do now, what should they do? Yeah, I think for people who have money, donate as much as you can. Spread it out to Senate campaigns, congressional campaigns, state legislative campaigns, presidency. And you obviously you don't have to give it to all of those things, but pick a few areas. I always make a plug for state legislatures because we're being outspent at the state legislative level much more dramatically than anywhere else. We're actually doing really well at the Senate presidential level, although you could always give more to those. But finding state legislative campaigns to give to, and if you go to the Future Now Fund website, you can give to our state legislative fund. And the Arena Future Now jointly have figured out how to make your money. 100% of it will go to, to state legislative campaigns. And we figured out a way to make it go to the right ones where it'll make the biggest difference. But you can give to the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. You can give to individual Senate campaigns. You can give to Vote Save America. You can give to the Biden campaign. If you haven't maxed out to the Biden campaign, that's always a great area to go because we all benefit from that. And then if once you're done like with the monetary side of things, if you live in a congressional district or a swing state or anything like that, like either physically go down to your campaign office or virtually and ask them how you could help. And if you don't live in one of those places, just go on the internet, find a campaign that you believe in, reach out to a couple because you never know some campaigns are more organized than others and 
reach out to a few, see who gets back to you first, and just do whatever they ask you to do with the amount of time you have, whether it's making phone calls, texts, or whatever. And sign up to be a poll worker is always helpful. We need those. If you're of sound body and good health, we could always use more poll workers to make sure that our election infrastructure works. Yeah, that wasn't one thing. That was a lot of things. And there's a lot we can do. So. Well, Ravi Gupta, it was a real honor to speak with you today. Well, thank you. I hope that people are going to support your work at Arena. I'm going to put all this on my website in the podcast notes. Listen to Majority 54, watch Dress Rehearsal. So thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.